So last week, um, Chris spoke so long, I didn't get to finish my sermon up. So uh, (laughs) we're going to be continuing on looking at the book of Matthew. We're in that section of Matthew that is called the Sermon on the Mount. And right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew lets us know that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing. And as he said that, then he moves right away into this longest kind of sermon that we have from Jesus in the scriptures. So this is kind of the gospel of the kingdom. This is what it means to walk as a citizen of the king. What John the Baptist announced, what Jesus announces, the kingdom has come. It's here. The Messiah has arrived. And we've talked about the reality that sometimes in the church the gospel is just reduced to this fact of trust in Jesus and you'll make it into heaven. But that's just a component of the gospel. The gospel is actually that the king has arrived and he's bringing into this world through himself and through his followers the presence of the kingdom and that one day all this stuff that is wrong and bad in this world is going to be done away with and we get to participate right now as his sons and daughters in his process of bringing the kingdom into this world. And I'm really pleased that our church is going to sponsor an Afghan family. You can't look very far in the Old Testament and and not see that God has a heart for the alien and the stranger. And I've got a heart for the alien and the stranger. I'm married to a resident alien. And so... The reality is, I think it's, it's Leviticus 19.4 that says we're to love, or the Jews were to love the alien and the stranger as they love themselves. And he says, you've got to remember, folks, that you Jews, you were once aliens and strangers and foreigners in Egypt, and God rescued you out of that. So as we have the opportunity to minister to some that are coming to our shores, it's a tremendous opportunity to show the love of God to these people. And I think sometimes we forget that all of us are aliens and strangers in this land. Unless you're a Native American, we are all immigrants. We are all aliens and strangers. And we've got as an opportunity as a church to reach out with Christ's love to this family. So I'd urge you, if you can be there next week for the Sunday school class, just to to be part of that class so that we can learn to love these folks well and hopefully introduce them to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So... We're going to be continuing on with, with looking at fasting. It's like, oh, not again. I just almost remembered that or forgot that sermon from last week, and now we're, we're talking about it again. And it's this weird and kind of forgotten spiritual practice, and I think some of that forgetting this practice is justified because very soon in the church, and I think you even see this tendency when the New Testament was written, that kind of these ascetic, denying your body any pleasure type of practices became really highly elevated. And then you get to the mid, Middle Ages, right? And then you have guys that are flagellating themselves, and anything that would be pleasurable in the body was thought of being awful and terrible and that needed to be pushed down. That is not the call of Scripture. God designed our bodies. They're a beautiful thing. He designed our taste buds to be able to taste really good foods, right? He gave us sexual pleasure. All these things God has created in us, and and we're good, and it's a part of the creation of God. Yet the challenge is with living with that goodness and all the delights that the world offers, that those delights can take precedence over our delight in Jesus Christ, And to me, that's where the importance of a practice like fasting comes in. It's not so much what we deny ourselves, but it is 
what we are pushing into, not what we're pushing away from, but what we're pushing into, and that is to get to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a deeper and in a richer way. Again, you look in this passage, and we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up. There should be one under one of the seats near you. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources. Please, if you're visiting, pick up anything that is of interest to you. Take it as our gift. But I want to read from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus speaking And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And as I was reading through this passage, it struck me that previously Jesus had talked about giving, And we've seen the importance of giving. Chris is teaching a class on that right now. And that giving is promised a reward. If you do that in secret, that your Father will reward you, it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. And then he talks about prayer. And all believers would say, yeah, we're really on board with prayer. That's really important. And in that same passage, Jesus says, you know, if you pray in secret, don't draw attention to yourself. Your Father will reward you. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer as this model prayer. And then he goes into fasting and he says the same thing. Basically, don't do it for show. But if you do it, your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And this struck me a couple years ago and just thinking, man, we talk all about praying and giving is really important, but fasting is like, let's not talk about that. And so it just struck me. And to me, again, as we look at fasting, it's one of those disciplines that I think hardly anybody regularly practices in the church today. That's just the reality. And my question is, I wonder why that is. Why is this so difficult and why don't we do this? And I think there's a lot of reasons. I think it's just thought of as weird, but I think in our culture where We're not to deny ourselves anything, right? That's repression, and I'm going to be psychologically damaged if I don't get everything I want at the exact moment that I want it, right? We're going to watch, many of us are going to watch this thing called the Super Bowl, right? And there are corporations that will pay $7 million for a 30-second slot during this game where you throw around this ball made of pigskin. They spend $7 million to what? to entice you into something that this is something you've got to have and you've got to have it right now and maybe you can do an order for that even in the midst of watching the Super Bowl, right? I was reading about uh, Tom Brady. Many of you know he he was a quarterback in the NFL, just retired. And uh, I was talking about he and his relationship with his wife, Giselle Bunchen, and uh, they were saying, oh, you know, she probably pushed a little bit hard to get him to retire because she was feeling kind of isolated. And they're saying, yeah, and I don't know how much of this is true or not, but anyhow, the reality is, the guy said, and he made this comment, now they really look forward to kind of pooling their efforts in order to make more money. I'm like, this is what they're looking forward to now? The guy said their net worth is $650 million. Okay, what can you not buy if you have $650 million that the thing in life that you most look forward to now that you've retired is to make more money? I'm just like, whoa. And I don't think most people in our culture would scratch their head and say, why are they doing that? 
But again, to me, that's where, okay, money is not wrong. We can do a lot of great things with it, but where it's taken a place over God. And as I've read a bunch on fasting, it seems to be that one discipline that will help us disconnect from so many of the good things in life that become ultimate things to us and then can push God out. I mentioned the parable of the soils, and to me the one soil or the one seed that I struggle most with is that second to last one that is choked out. And what is it choked out by? The worries or the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and then Mark adds the desire for other things. And I'm like, wow, I wonder where that is hitting me in my life. Is there a desire for something else that is pushing God to the sidelines in my life and making me kind of fruitless spiritually? And again, I think fasting is one of those ways where we can kind of loosen the grip on all these other desires that we have in life. They may be legitimate desires, right? But they're not the ultimate best desire because that ultimate best desire is for us to have a relationship with Christ that grows in depth and intimacy and obedience. And as we looked at fasting, to me, as you look scripturally, fasting is primarily about abstaining from food for a particular season for a spiritual purpose. But I think it can be expanded to more than just that. Um, The famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones of the last century in in England says this, fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink alone. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual purpose. There are many functions of which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but for which a particular reason in a certain season should be controlled. He says this is fasting. So what Lloyd-Jones is saying there is fasting basically is denying yourself something good, not to focus on what you're denying, but to focus on connecting with what is ultimately to be our highest and noblest desire, and that's a relationship with God. So Jesus, here he assumes, and I gave some reasons for fasting last week, Jesus seems to assume that his followers will do it, right? He doesn't say, if you fast, but when you fast. And he says the same thing in Matthew 9, 15. Just when I'm gone, my disciples are going to fast. So it seems to me that Jesus assumes this is what we are going to do. And again, to me, the big point of this is that fasting is something that God said he's going to reward. This is going to allow us to experience a blessing of God. And again, this is not the, okay, I put my money in the divine you know, slot machine, and if I fast enough, I'm going to win big. But it's, it's a blessing that is promised as we practice this. And so to me, this is one of these things that as I look at the New Testament, though we see God clearly saying give, and though we see God clearly saying pray in the New Testament, nowhere do we see fast. It's not commanded. So I want to make that very clear, that this is an invitation for us to push into God, to experience a reward from God, but it's not a demand for that. Because I see nowhere in the New Testament where this is demanded. It's assumed that we're going to do it. And to me, it's like, wow, if this is something that allows me to be blessed and to be rewarded by God, why would I not want to do this? It also, we talked about last week, it demonstrates with our bodies what we say with our mouths, that Jesus Christ is most important, and that's what I am pursuing most heartily in my life.
And so we're saying, Jesus, I hunger for you more than I hunger for this food or whatever it is that you may choose to fast. Maybe Netflix, computer games, social media. Daniel seemed to have a fast in Daniel 10 where he fasted from rich foods. You know, so I'm not going to dictate to you what your fast should look like, but it seems to be I'm denying myself something that is not necessarily bad. It's not really a fast if I say, okay, for the next three weeks, no liver and no spinach. Not fasting. I'm fasting that. I'm giving that up for you, Jesus. Right? That's, this has got to be something that, that is good, that I want, that I have a hunger and desire for regularly in my life. And I say, I'm giving that up for a period of time, not because that thing is bad, but because the time that I may have spent doing that, now I want to focus on Jesus and pushing in to Jesus. So that is this sense of, Jesus, I value you more than I value these even good gifts that you've given to me. As we recognize, it also seems to be this ability for us to disconnect and maybe have a little bit more strength in our battle with other desires that may not be so legitimate. It really struck me, and I was listening to a teaching on this, it's been several years ago, but you know, Jesus fast, he's baptized, right? And the first thing that happens after his baptism is what? Right? The Holy Spirit grabs him, heads him out into the desert, the Eremos, we talked about that when we were talking about solitude and silence, and he's fasting for 40 days. Why? because the Holy Spirit knew a showdown with the adversary was coming. And to me, fasting provides some sense of spiritual strength in the midst of this, so he wasn't weak at the end of that 40 days of fasting. Maybe physically he was weak, but spiritually he was probably stronger than he'd ever been. And knowing that, okay, I'm gonna face the evil one here, the Holy Spirit leads him out and he says, I want you to fast, I want you to connect so closely with God that you have the resources then to beat down this temptation in your life that's coming. And again, to me, you know, a lot of us struggle with what old people and people through the ages call besetting sins. Those things in our lives that, man, they, we, we keep tripping into them. And I think fasting is one of those practices that may help us to have a little bit more strength in battling some of those temptations of our flesh because we realize, man, if I can say no to hunger, I can say no to this other desire that may not be as good in my life right now. Fasting is also done to express serious dependence on God in prayer. If you read scripture, often prayer and fasting are combined together. You see that church in Acts 13, they were praying and fasting and God said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for this world mission operation that I want to initiate. So they seriously were depending on God. We want to know who you're calling towards this ministry. We want to be part of spreading your gospel, but we want to hear from you. We're expressing how serious we are about this prayer. We see it as in times where the people of God need protection. To me, the best example of that is an Esther, right? Esther is the queen and Mordecai and Haman. Haman wants to take down the Jews and a decree has been issued that all the Jews are going to be killed at a certain date. And Mordecai says to Esther, hey, you need to go into the king and you need to get this decree stopped somehow. And she's like, you can't just waltz into the king's palace, man. <laughs> if he doesn't extend the rod of, you know, basically grace to you, you're dead. 
And Mordecai says, hey, you know, I think you're in this position for this very reason. And what does she do? She says, okay, call everybody to fast and, and pray for three days before I go in to the king. So she seriously wanted God's protection, and it seemed to be that fasting was part of, God, I'm really serious about this. We need your help. We are completely dependent on you. And so I think fasting is a way just to show God, without you, I can't do this. And there are seasons in life when we face various things where it's just, I think God's calling us to a fast to say, God, I'm totally dependent on you and I want to indicate that by being willing to abstain from whatever it is I'm fasting from to focus on you and to acknowledge my dependence on you. We see in 1 Corinthians 7 that a husband and wife sexually fasted for a period of time to devote themselves to prayer. I don't know what they were praying about, but the point is that they are giving up something that's legitimate, it's a joy, it's a gift from God for a season so that they could devote themselves to prayer for something that was more significant at that time. So fasting, whatever it is from, indicates with our body, basically, I'm really seriously dependent on you. God, I need you to come through in this particular situation. Fasting is also a way to express genuine and humble repentance. Remember Jonah, the story of Jonah, the reluctant prophet? He wants the Ninevites to be torched, right? And he says, God, I know you're a God of compassion and grace, and probably if these people turn around, you're actually gonna forgive them. So I don't want to go. And so he heads the other way. God's got his way of getting him back. And so then he announces to the town, 40 days and you're all toast. And then he goes out of town to wait and hope that God will bring fire and destruction on these people that he hates. And what do the people do? They fast. They repent. They fast. Even the animals fast. It's like, okay, how do you get an animal? It's like, okay, they're just denied from getting to the food. I don't think it was a voluntary fast for the animals. But the point is that they took this seriously. They are evidencing, God, we're genuinely and humbly repentant before you. Right? And to me, one of the most amazing turnaround testimonies is of Ahab. So I'm going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab, if you know Ahab, was probably the poster child for the worst king possible. Child sacrifice, brutality, all sorts of horrible stuff. He was married to a woman that wasn't so nice. Her name was Jezebel, but I won't get into that. But verse 27 of 1 Kings 21 says this, And when Ahab heard these words, this word of judgment that was coming, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. That Ahab, to me, again, one of the worst kings that Israel ever had, When he heard destruction was coming, he humbled himself. And one of the ways that he showed his genuine repentance, even a guy like Ahab, was he fasted. And the Lord says, do you see? He's humbled himself, and therefore I will relent in bringing the disaster that I had said was going to come upon him. So fasting, again, 
Fasting does not merit forgiveness, but sometimes fasting can show, God, I'm super sorry about this. I want this to change in my life, and I'm serious about it, and I'm seriously sorry about what I have done. And then another reason for fasting, I think, is to increase empathy and concern for the poor. And this is Isaiah 58. The Israelites at this time uh, had a form of religion, basically. They were going through the religious rituals of the day, and fasting was one of those things that they were supposed to do, and the whole thing was just a scam, according to God. So just listen as I read Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So Isaiah's just saying, okay, you look at this and you're doing all the right things externally, but your heart is in totally the wrong place because you're fasting. Yeah, but when you're fasting, what? You're oppressing the poor. You're not paying wages to your workers. You're getting into all sorts of arguments and it's just bad, but we're fasting. We want to know what the Lord is communicating to us, right? And Isaiah says, that's not a fast that God is going to pay any attention to. And then he says in verse 6, this is kind of fast that I'm really interested in. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth from the dawn and your healing spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. So what is Isaiah saying there? Basically that in this situation the Israelites are doing the right thing externally, religiously. But their hearts are far from God. They are practicing this bodily abstinence. But at the same time, they're mistreating the poor. They're not caring for the most needy. And God says, that is not the kind of fast that I want. To me, one of the benefits of fasting is that for a period, a voluntary period, a season, I experience hunger. And hopefully that hunger will let me know, you know what, there are people in this world that every day, involuntarily, they experience hunger as a regular part of their life. So it's designed to create in us a 
a compassion and empathy for the poor. And here Isaiah is pushing that. He said, okay, I'm not that concerned even with the external fast. What I'm more concerned is if you have a heart of care and concern and love for the poor and justice and those kind of things. So don't try to smear that over with some religious practice that is not consistent with a heart that has been changed and a heart that loves other people. I know some folks that fast, that the resources they would spend on the meals during their fast, they set aside and they give to organizations that help the less fortunate. I think that's a, a great thing. So again, the fasting it, here, it's, Isaiah says, it's not primarily about what I'm denying myself. God's not that impressed with that. <laughs> but it's about my heart being tender towards the bigger issues of justice and care for the poor and concern for the poor. So I always say, you know, if you fast and you're a jerk when you're fasting, stop it. Just stop it. Back away from it, okay? Just don't do that. And that, that, this passage in Isaiah is like, okay, if you can't treat people around you kindly when you're fasting for God, then don't fast for God. But to me, those don't have to be mutually exclusive. Can I get to that point where I will actually fast and also allow that fast to give me a greater heart and concern for those that are less fortunate and are experiencing this on a regular basis when I'm just experiencing for a season to push in to my relationship with Jesus Christ. So those to me are a lot of the reasons for fasting. How should we do it? How do we go about this practice? Actually living it out in our lives. Well the first thing to me, if you're struggling at all medically, you need to talk to your doctor before this. I've talked about this last week before as well. There's a lot of struggles with food in our culture and body image and stuff like that. If you're struggling with that, I want you to go see a counselor, talk to them, but don't probably participate in fasting at this point in time. But if you're medically able, how are we to go about this? To me, again, the focus is not so much on exactly how we do it, but the heart that is behind why we are doing this. So as you look at it, how often should we fast? I'm going to give you a break. Somewhere between once a year and two times a week. That's what we get in Scripture, right? In the Old Testament, there was only one fast day required, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. By Jesus' time, there was the practice of the religious leaders. They would fast twice a week. Monday and Thursday, and I gave you that quote from the Didache last week that, you know, the, the writer there says, okay, the hypocrites fast Monday and Thursday, you guys fast Wednesday and Friday. So it seemed to be in the early church then, this practice of fasting twice a week seemed to be part of their tradition at that point in time. But again, I want to say that's a tradition. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you must fast, and nowhere in Scripture does it say you must fast this often. To me, this is something you've got to wrestle through with the Lord. And again, to me, this is not something we have to do, but this is something that God will enable us to do, hopefully to connect with him and to experience a deeper sense of intimacy with him and being rewarded by him. To me, the key in all this, as Jesus says in this section, is just to do it in secret. This is not to get glory for you, for people to look at you and say, oh, how spiritual they are. It's also not to lose weight. It's not to, you know, get cut and toned and all that. That's not a biblical fast. But it's for a spiritual purpose, to connect with God. How long a period should you fast? Again, we're not told in Scripture how long it should be. 
The typical fast in Scripture was a one-day fast. Sun up to sunset was the typical day. There are three-day fasts in Scripture. There are two-week fasts in Scripture. And there are several 40-day fasts in Scripture. I wouldn't fast for 40 days unless you have a direct word from God where he has spoken to you and then you clear that with talking to godly people in your life as well. But to me, as you think about, okay, maybe this is something God is calling me to, to increase my intimacy with him, to me, start small. Maybe just start by skipping one meal and just see how it goes. And you realize, oh, this is okay, or, oh, I get terribly hangry, and this is not a good thing. And I told you myself, when I started this practice, I would be terribly hangry by the end of the day, barking at my wife and my kids, and God brought me to Isaiah 58, and he said, is this the kind of fast that I want? <laughs> that you're yelling at your kids, and you're short with your wife in the midst? No, probably not. So then I've learned over time, okay, how can I do this and not get to that place? Because I think it's easy, oh, that fasting is crazy stuff, I'm just going to throw it out because it's so difficult, but what can I do actually to not be so hangry? And for me, taking a little juice periodically during that time helps me not to be so hangry. And I think this is something that can develop in your life over time. So I'm not going to tell you how often to fast, and I'm not going to tell you how long to fast. I'm not even going to tell you what to fast other than it should be something desirous that you want that you're willing to give up, right? Lent is coming up, and early on, Lent was basically a fast. For 40 days, the church would fast from sunup to sundown and then just eat a light meal at night with no rich foods. That's kind of changed to, okay, I'm just going to give up something for Lent. Again, I don't see Lent in Scripture. It's not a bad practice, but again, it's nowhere is it mandated in Scripture. And again, to me, it's just got to be something that I desire, that I can say through this fast, God, I desire you more than I desire this. I want you more than that. So... How long, how often, that's something you need to work out with the Holy Spirit before the Lord in prayer. And if you're not at a place physically where you can do this in terms of food, think of something else maybe that God would ask you to give up for a season. Again, the focus is not so much on what I'm giving up, but why I'm giving it up. It's to focus on Christ and my relationship with him. I want to close with some of the dangers of fasting. John Piper wrote a book on fasting, Hunger for God. And in the introduction, he writes, Beware books on fasting. <laughs> I love that. He starts his book by saying, Beware books on fasting. Because there are some dangers to fasting. There's a temptation when we fast to think of ourselves as spiritually superior to other people. Especially in our day and age where hardly anybody fasts. That I am one of the elite among the elect. I am the faster. I really take my relationship with Jesus seriously. And let me tell you about that. Right? Fasting doesn't make you part of the spiritual special forces for God. It should put us in a place where we want to receive from God and, and just show our dependence on God. And so to keep us from becoming proud in this practice, just don't talk about it. 
just go through your life. Jesus says, anoint your head with oil. It's like, okay, nobody in my culture is pouring oil on their head in the morning and thinking that's a good thing, right? You go out with greasy hair, you're like, oh, dude, take a shower. You know, it's the opposite in our culture, right? Take a shower, wash up, put on deodorant. Don't walk around with a gloomy face. Don't say, oh, I'm fasting. I'm not going to eat anything. If somebody asks you, you can say them. It's not, not the big deal there, but don't draw attention to that in your life. A second temptation is a temptation when we fast to major on the minors. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, man, you guys tithe. You tithe everything, even the herbs in your garden you tithe. He says, nah, it's not a bad thing. But you neglect justice and mercy and the things that are more important. And to me, that's what you see in Isaiah 58, that they are going through this motion, right? But they are not living out the more important aspects of our relationship with God. Showing justice, caring for the poor, being loving towards all those around them. So again, if fasting makes you unable to do those things, then maybe you shouldn't fast. But if God is nudging you in that way, ask him for wisdom in knowing how to fast so that it doesn't become the focus. Oh, I'm fasting. And it's all focused on what I'm denying myself, not focused on what I'm pushing into, and that's Jesus Christ. Third thing and third temptation is the temptation to try and manipulate God. That I'm fasting to force God's hand to act in a particular way in my life. I think fasting does show seriousness of what we're calling on God to do in a particular situation in our life. But it is never to be used to try and manipulate God. God does not get manipulated. He knows what our motives are. It's not like, oh, I'm going to fast this way so I can get this, right? It's the prosperity gospel. Give $100 and God will bring a hundredfold blessing back to you, right? You'll be $10,000 by the end of the... Yeah, that's not how it works. In fact, God abhors that kind of religion. He wants our hearts to be engaged in it. He will not be manipulated, so don't think, okay, if I fast, then automatically this is going to happen because I'm fasting. But I'm placing myself in a position where, God, I want what you want, even more maybe than I want this prayer that I'm praying right now during my fast to be answered because I'm trusting in you and I'm placing myself in a position of total dependence on you. I'm hungering for you more than anything else in life. Fourthly, one of the dangers of temptation here in fasting is to expect kind of a spiritual breakthrough and amazing experience every time we fast, right? And I'm fasting, it should be like, oh, <laughs> I'm deeply connected. Those times can happen, they're wonderful, but not probably every time. Sometimes you fast and you're just hungry, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, but isn't that true of everything that we do, right? It's not that every moment that we pray is this deep connection or every time we sit down with someone we love for a meal, it's this incredible conversation, but we just keep showing up. And in that process of showing up, there are the opportunities for God to work in powerful ways during those times. And I think as you see any of the disciplines here, it's just God, I'm going to do this because I want to connect with you, but I recognize that you're still God, and I'm not. So I'm going to bring what I am into this situation, and I'm going to show by what I'm doing that I want to connect with you, but I can't demand that you act in a particular way in my life. 
And as we've talked about before, God is a whole lot bigger. His ways are a whole lot different than our ways often. And so fasting indicates, God, I want to be completely dependent on you. And this is something that I'm really concerned about right now that I'm bringing to you. But I'm not going to be able to pull that lever and push that button and force you to do what I want you to do. So don't think of fasting as the golden ticket to get what you want from God. And just if I fast a little harder or a little longer, then God will have to come through in a particular way in my life. So again, I just want to invite you to look at this and to consider this. Because this is not something I did for a long, long time in my Christian life. I was like, ah, this fasting stuff's for really, you know, it's for those missionaries, you know, those really, like those serious special forces Christians, you know. But for the average Joe Christian, that's, you know. But I've come to find it is really significant in my life. And I really do think that it helps us in battling with those things in our lives and other areas, those other desires that come up and it said, you know what, it didn't kill me not to eat, so it's probably not going to kill me not to do this as well. But most of all, to me, what it has represented in my life is just, God, I want you and I hunger for you more than I hunger for anything else in this world. It's the end of that Psalm 73 where the beginning, the psalmist is looking around and he's saying, God, I've been following you and life stinks right now. And guys I know that aren't following you at all, man, it is just smooth sailing. Everything is going well for them. And he gets to the end of that psalm or in the middle, he says, you know, this was oppressive to me. I tried to figure all this out till I entered into the house of God and I realized, you know, this, this is just a moment in life that we have right now. And I understood that, you know, Tom Brady and Gisele Bündchen, I have no idea where they're at spiritually, but they're $650 million, or if they triple that to, what would that be, $1,950 million by the end of their life, $1 billion, $950 million, yeah, that, 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 that's still going to all go away, right? And what's not going to go away is my relationship with you. And I want to begin to experience more of that right now. And I want to begin to experience living out your kingdom in this world and not being so pulled by my desires. That Philippians 3.19, talking about people in this world, their God is their stomach, their God is their appetite. Whatever they desire, they've got to have right now. And it pushes me into that right away. And it's like, that's not what I want to be about, God. I want to be about you, but I know so often I'm about that other stuff. Because when I listen to that $7 million commercial, it's like, oh, I've got to have that. And God says, no, 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 you don't. But if we don't periodically say no to those legitimate good things in our life, I think it's a whole lot harder to say no when those things pop up in our life. I want to close with a quote from Ignatius. He was Bishop of Antioch, and Antioch is my favorite early church church. It was this multicultural church, people coming from all over the place. It was the church that started the mission movement, basically. And this is Ignatius. He was bishop at the end of the first century. So this guy probably, I'm thinking probably met Paul, knew some of the leaders in Acts 13 that had fasted and prayed. And and this is what he says. Devote yourself to fasting and prayer, but not beyond measure, lest you destroy yourself thereby. Do not altogether abstain from wine and meat. He's not a vegetarian and he's not a teetotaler. For these things are not to be viewed with abhorrence since the scripture says you shall eat the good things of the earth. And again, you shall eat meat 
even as herbs. And again, wine makes glad the heart of man, and oil exhilarates, and bread strengthens him. He's not a keto dude either. But all are to be used with moderation as being the gifts of God. For who shall eat or who shall drink without him? For if anything is beautiful, it is his. And if anything is good, it is his as well. God has given us so many amazing good gifts in this world to enjoy. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He's given us all things richly to enjoy. But the danger for us as human beings is those good things sometimes become ultimate things for us. And they push God to the side in our life. And I think fasting is one of those practices that help us to keep the main thing the main thing. And like Bishop Ignatius says, to do this in moderation, I think, will be a spiritual benefit for all of us. So, I'm not going to tell you what to do this morning, but I want to say read the scriptures, see if this may be a practice that God is calling you to do. It's one that God says you're going to be rewarded if you do it. So I'm not here to lay a guilt trip on you. Like I said, nowhere in scripture is this commanded that you fast, but I think, man, I don't want to miss out on the benefit of being rewarded by my father. So maybe this is something that I can do. And that was a conviction that I came to a couple years ago. Um, So it took me a long time to get there. So if you're not there yet, keep praying, keep thinking, talking about this. But again, to me, it's an invitation to a good thing, not an invitation to kind of an ascetic, terrible, oh, I got to do this. But no, I get to push in to Jesus and get to know this great God and Savior that I say I love and serve. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you have created all these amazing good gifts and that we can enjoy them. That we can gather with friends and eat good food and enjoy entertainment and just enjoy the good gifts of your creation. That you delight to give good gifts to your children. Yeah, Lord, we, we know that so often things crowd you out to the external of our lives. That we need periodically reminders that we need to be overwhelmed by you. So Lord, help us as we think about this practice to see how it would be part of our lives if you're calling us to that. I pray that that would be done in such a way that it's not a burden of guilt, but an invitation to grace and life. So thank you for who you are, Jesus. Thank you that you were one that went before us and that you're calling us into a deeper walk and intimacy with you. Lord, we want to push into that. We struggle with that, but thank you that your grace is fresh and available to us as we journey forward. Lord, help us to take advantage of those around us that have gone before us and to learn maybe how we can grow in our relationship with you and grow in our ability to say no to these other desires that often creep up in our lives that are not so legitimate. So, Lord, we need your help. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for Jesus. It's because of him that we come and we gather and we live and we love and we laugh and we care because he has given us life, and that life is life to the full. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.